Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. Bernard Tort will analyze the political and economic crisis in Puerto Rico, and Shahan Karatasli will analyze the political and economic crisis in Turkey. Puerto Rico is seeing a wave of popular activism with no recent precedent. The immediate spark was the release of some chat transcripts involving the governor and his associates, which revealed them as vulgar and bigoted reactionaries. But discontent has long been simmering over a decade of economic depression, a debt crisis, and the damage from Hurricane Maria, which still persists. Since 2016, because of extreme indebtedness, the country has essentially been governed by a fiscal oversight board, known as PROMESA, heavy with bankers and lawyers. It's been ordering extreme austerity so that debt may continue to be serviced. The big winners so far, hedge funds who've been speculating in Puerto Rican bonds. The losers, the people of Puerto Rico. Here to explain is Bernat Tort. Tort is a philosophy professor at the University of Puerto Rico, as well as an activist and co-founder of Junta Gente, a coalition of groups that addresses the question, as Tort puts it, what can we do together that we cannot do apart? The aim is to fight the disaster capitalists, the bond vultures, and the austerity party. According to Gallup, two-thirds of Americans support statehood for Puerto Rico, which seems surprisingly high to me, but the number has barely changed since they first started asking the question in 1963. By contrast, Americans oppose statehood for D.C. by a two-to-one margin. As you'll hear from Tort, sentiment on statehood versus independence within Puerto Rico is harder to read, though statehood is largely a dream of the right. Here's Bernard Tort. Let's first talk just a bit about this immediate crisis. A bunch of texts were leaked involving the governor, Ricardo Acello, who said he will not resign as a result of them. What do the texts show and what can you say about the governor, Rossello, going into this, uh, this latest scandal? Just to, to give a context, Ricardo Rossello, the current government, uh, governor of Puerto Rico, is the son of Pedro Rossello. Pedro Rossello was governor in the late 90s. Also, his, his governance was steeped in, in scandal and corruption, uh, almost 40 of his uh, cabinet members and, and close uh, governmental relationships ended up uh, having having corruption charges. So that's the context. So that tells you a bit of, of about the poor historical memory that, that the Puerto Rican voters seem to, to have. So Ricardo Rosselló uh, is the latest uh, governor. He's very young, very inexperienced, very inarticulate. Not Trump-level inarticulacy, but inarticulate. So j- this is just to, to say that one would think that nothing that, that would come up would surprise people. But suddenly this chat, this private chat uh, that was shared by uh, some members of uh, cabinet members, some uh, political strategists and some publicists, showed the egregious vulgarity and and the, the lack of concern for governance and for the people that these elite representatives of, of capital have. Wasn't there even a joke about uh, shooting the mayor of San Juan? Uh, that one I, 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 have, I have not heard, but I would not be surprised. They have published 889 pages of the chat, chat so I, I haven't had the chance of reading all of them. Uh, People text me, did you see this? Did you see that? And but I haven't gone into that, but I would not be surprised because they they say things like, uh, for example, regarding Melissa Mark Viverito's uh, campaign in New York, they called her, uh, we, we have to go down on that whore. They use that word, puta in Spanish, which is a very strong word. I don't know if, if whore is that strong a word in English, but in, in Spanish it's a very strong word, very demeaning, sexist term. They made jokes about the number of deaths in Hurricane Maria. Yeah, God, so it's just appalling stuff. 
So what kind of political formation does he come out of? Who does he represent? He's uh, the leader of the, the New Progressive uh, Party. They're the party for statehood. Differently from the United States by party, uh, uh, by party system, where you have a feeling that Republicans have, are fiscal conservatives and, and then Democrats are social, socially liberal. So you have a, a kind of sense of the right and the left uh, in, in, through voting. In Puerto Rican politics, the question of the status, the colonial status, takes precedence in the identity of the parties. So he represents the party for statehood. But as of late, that party has been the, the most neoliberal uh, party, the one who's trying to privatize every government, all the the, the utilities, I'm sorry, yeah, utilities. Yes. He represents, on the one hand, the very elite neoliberal uh, pro-statehood class, and their base are the, the Protestant religious more popular base. So they, they, they kind of juggle very much like the Republican Party in the United States. They juggle between catering to the very rich and then giving some legislation to appease their base, like, for example, trying to forbid abortion or to limit abortion rights, etc., etc. How much of inroads into Puerto Rican society have evangelical Protestants made? Is it like the rest of Latin America becoming a growing force? Yes, it is a growing force. Uh, uh, like in in the censuses, Puerto Rico is still uh, considered a majority Catholic country, but that is a, a silent, politically silent majority. They 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 have still some power, but but in terms of being a political identity, that people that can be rallied to mobilize and vote based on that identity, on the Christian identity, I think that, yes, it is a, a huge force, and it's mainly pro statehood. And then how much of an independence movement is left in Puerto Rico? That's a, a tricky question because in terms of the, the political party that represents independence, the Puerto Rican Independence Party, in the last four elections, they, they have not gotten enough votes to be reinstated. So they have had to go to the streets every new election to get re reinstated, uh, getting the signatures. To appear in the ballot. To appear in the ballot again. So as you can see, it's a very weak movement but most of the left in puerto rico do not vote so it's very difficult to establish a number so if, if i were to go just based on elections you could say that uh, the puerto rican independence movement now represents roughly three percent of the vote but if you consider that uh, a lot of people vote for the democratic popular party even though they believe in independence because they have a, a pragmatist approach. They, they'd rather vote for that party in, in order not to advance the pro-statehood party. The same as people uh, voting for Hillary instead of people in, even in the left voting for Hillary instead of Bernie because they thought Hillary w was a sure win in contrast to a, an openly socialist candidate, etc. So that happens a lot. So it's very difficult to establish a number Almost all socialists I know don't vote. Almost all radically or progressive people I know don't vote. So, so it's a difficult number to assess. Hurricane Maria was uh, almost two years ago. How much has the island recovered from it? Or are you still suffering? Uh, we are still suffering uh, in terms of infrastructure. And, and we are suffering in terms of uh, politics as well. In terms of infrastructure, the, if you come to the, to the metropolitan area, you see that most most of it has been uh, rebuilt, 
but uh, in other parts of the island, uh, in in the mountains, in Vieques, for example, they 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 still have problems with electricity. They did not get their electricity until a few months ago, so they were more than a year uh, without electricity. And some part of the island, some parts of the island have have suffered greatly. And in terms of infrastructure, there is no plan to rebuild. So there are people in the countryside that that, that are being told, if you want electricity, you have to pay for it yourself. So that that goes to show the the, the neoliberal approach to uh, they are clients, and because it's not uh, economically rentable to uh, bring electricity up to those places, they're leaving them without service. Politically, we we are suffering on two fronts. First, we have an administration that has to do barely nothing in order to to be thought of as having done something. Because Hurricane Maria was so rough that basically, if they just bring things back to where they were, which was still like an, an economic crisis, they would be considered like a good administration. So that's terrible politically for Puerto Ricans because what they're going to compare their state, uh, the state of governments, is to Hurricane Maria and, no, and not to the state Puerto Rico was in prior to Hurricane Maria. The other front is, uh, is that Puerto Ricans have lowered their expectations of government because uh, during during the, the hurricane, uh, we had an absent state. And the hurricane was so, so devastating that most people for the first two, three weeks to sort of excuse the government is like, oh, there's nothing they can do. Everything is shut down. Everything is destroyed. We have to give them time. But after a while, when, when people found out that nothing was happening and they started doing it themselves and helping and starting doing mutual aid uh, centers for feeding themselves, etc. So we had an absent government and that has lowered expectations and people right now don't expect the government to do anything. So that's that's what makes this whole scandal with the with the chat uh, more exasperating because they were getting away with everything with shutting down the schools they they had shut uh, more than 300 public schools and uh, julia kelleher the former secretary of education just got arrested uh, on charges of corruption and uh, money laundering and she had an outrageously large salary on a country that's in debt and it's bankrupt and still she had like a $250,000 uh, contract. And now we know that all that money that she, she was handling, it was being uh, misused and, and, and stolen. Even before the hurricane, the Puerto Rican economy, by, by standard measures, let alone measures of human welfare, but by standard measures, Puerto Rico had been in, in recession for over a decade. Uh, and you know, since, since the, the, the hurricane, it's been it's worse, of course. What's the economic situation like uh, for Puerto Ricans? Since the, the global economic crisis in 2008, before that we, we, we were in a crisis, but since 2008, we have been in, a, in an economic depression. That was what prompted the staggering amount of the Puerto Rican debt. That's what prompted PROMESA. That's the, the Fiscal Oversight Com- uh, Committee assigned by President Obama, uh, which de facto became the governing body of Puerto Rico. So actually right now we don't have a democratic government. We, we have a democratically elected government, but all Puerto Rican spending as a whole have to go through the fiscal control board. And they are the ones who are cutting funds from uh, the university. They're cutting more than half of the University of Puerto Rico's budget. They're 
uh, gonna sell PREPA or our electric utilities agency, the, the ones who are leading the, the charge on the on the closing of public housing, public uh, schools, and health uh, on health insurance, etc. They're cutting on all of our of our essential needs. I'm speaking with the philosophy professor and political activist Bernard Tort. So this sort of approach, I mean, uh, it's not going to work, obviously. I mean, they're just squeezing uh, blood out of out of a stone. Uh, there are no resources in Puerto Rico to service this debt. But do they have a plan? Does it even make sense on their own logic? I think the logic is it's of extracting as much, as much wealth as they can before. Uh, I think they know in the end it's unviable and untenable, but I think it's a very predatory a predatory approach in terms of extracting all the wealth possible before they they simply give it over to another administration. So it's it's a, a mixture of the global tendency of the financial capital of financial capital of using debt as the main mode of extraction of wealth in in an economy that's constantly changing through the due to technology and and changes in modes of production. It's a mixture of that with an elite class who are only out to make a buck. So the, I, in answer to the question, I think there's no plan. I think the plan is to squeeze, as you said, the rock dry and then leave and let someone else deal with the, with the problems. So you've got a, a country with a very corrupt ruling class uh, that's under the thumb of mainland financiers who are administering uh, the economy and the government. What is the way out of this? That's that's sort of the conundrum we we're facing right now. We are we are at a cro- crossroads. On the one hand, we we have a momentum that we cannot uh, they cannot waste a political momentum that that has been galvanized by by the 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 scandal, the recent scandal, the chat, the 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 fact that people now can see clearly that the emperor is naked. And, and people are mad. So, but the problem is that right now the chance of the people on the streets are that we want the government, the governor, to be either impeached or uh, step down from office because he's he's refusing to step down. So there's also a, a call for impeachment. So we have that. The problem is that if he steps down, the people who are going to substitute him or stepping step in for him are the same elite people who are part of the problem. So that's that's the conundrum. Do we ask simply for the government governor to step down? And the question is, are we organized politically enough in order to to call for elections, to call for new elections and call for a new, there's a, a new political party that's forming that's called uh, Victoria Ciudadana, which is a, 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 an alliance of people for social justice, uh, regardless of their status opinion. It's a, a non-status political party, which is a, a novelty in Puerto Rico. You mean neutral on the statehood question? No, neutral. They're, they're neutral on the statehood question. They are feminists. They are pro-social justice. They are pro. Uh, they're a worker party. And the question is: Is that party or something like that, or an alliance of the uh, on the left, organized enough to capture this momentum and 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 maybe win an election? That's that's the question. I don't know. Will today that there's uh, there's gonna be the biggest manifestation yet yet in an hour uh, at five o'clock. So we will have a better picture of where we are in terms of is it enough 
for for these guys to step down, or do we need uh, a more radical change? Uh, a change. There's one of the chants that says que se vayan todos. That we want them all out because we, we there's a sense that all that class, all the governing class, have done the same in both the 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 new progressive party, the statehood party, and the popular uh, democratic party, which is the, the one for the status quo, which is the, the Commonwealth Party. But does anyone have an idea of a, of a strategy, say economic development strategy, how to recover, uh, get out of the, the, the post-hurricane mess and, and 12 years of depression? To say that we do would be, uh, well, some people have have proposals, but to say that we do is is sort of... In my opinion, no, I'm not going to go out and say it would be a lie, but it, it would be a bit of a stretch in terms of the following. Like, yes, we, we some of our programs are due to our colonial status, but if we think of the, the, the case in Greece, Greece has a total uh, national sovereignty, and in terms of debt and in terms of how their elections and their policies are governed by the European Bank, it's clear that it's it's not just a matter of saying okay we have a, a different plan, but the fact that we are we are so immersed in and the and the financial capitalist logic of the debt, it makes it hard to think that unless we were to say okay we're not going to pay the debt, we have to audit the debt, and we're not going to pay it. We we want to find out who did the loaning and what was the money used for. And what is actual the actual amount of the loan, and what's the 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 exorbitant interest that are, are being uh, held on that loan? Until we do that, no matter what kind of uh, economic growth uh, plan we develop, it's going to work because right now the all the taxes, the sales tax, the EVU, how we we call it here, the EVU, all of it is going to go for the next 40 years to pay the debt. No matter who administers, we're not going to have enough money to implement any plan. So we need to pressure internationally and to pressure Congress into canceling the debt, into auditing our debt, and to making the people responsible for the economic crisis uh, responsible pay and be brought up on charges. It sounds like no one really knows where all the money went. Uh, there, you, yeah. Puerto Rico has an enormous debt bill, but no one knows where the proceeds of all the borrowing went. Yes. That's an extraordinary situation to be in. The debt is huge relative to the size of the Puerto Rican economy, right? But it has been acknowledged that, that uh, almost seven, uh, there's like a 700% interest rate. So it has been acknowledged by all the parties that most of it, most of the debt is simply predatory, uh, like hedge fund predatory techniques in order to to extract the most uh, dividends uh, out of the out of the the Puerto Rican bonds. And that is one of the, the, the most important campaigns right now, is the, the campaign to audit the debt in order to establish that we don't have to pay all that uh, excess amount. Is there any support for just repudiating it, not paying? There are the two movements are running simultaneously and there is support for both. The way that it has been uh, run through the media is uh, they, they are going uh, hard on the ideology that debts must be paid and then there's a very strong base and community movement in order to cancel the debt and not to pay it but right now i think the middle ground the most accepted middle ground is is an an audit 
and the canceling of the of the excess amount of but uh, of course i and the 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 groups I represent are we are for the canceling of the debt. Finally, I, I heard a while back that people are leaving Puerto Rico and coming to the mainland. Is that still happening? Yes, it is still happening. And we're going to have a census uh, coming up next year. And in it, we will find out exactly uh, how many. But people, uh, the, the numbers go from 200,000. Some people say a million have left the island. I am. I cannot back that up uh, with any census information or with any uh, statistics but uh, at least uh, 200,000 they have been documented that that was a study that was made based on the amount of uh, cellular phone contracts that changed their addresses to the United States. So it sounds like a population um, in despair. Yeah it is in many ways and and, uh, everything the, the prices are all going up there's a lot of gentrification there's a uh, law 20 and 22, which is a uh, uh, tax incentive, uh, tax exemption incentive for millionaires to move here. And in order to be applicable, uh, to applicable, they only have to live here for six months and have to generate just two jobs. So it's basically, uh, it's kind of, it's becoming a tax haven and people are, uh, are foreign investors and, uh, Investors from the United States are buying whole blocks of the metropolitan area, and the the effects of gentrification are being felt like radically. Gentrification, of course, is not uh, a recent invention. It has been happening for decades, but the intensity with which we are living it right now, it's, it's, it's sending masses and masses of people out of the urban areas and out of the country. And so depopulating Puerto Rico would be yeah. uh, in perfect uh, harmony with that strategy. Yes, and I, and I think that that has even been said, that uh, and that's that that has a long history. Where one of the the first uh, American governors uh, we had uh, after the the 1998 1898 invasion by the United States, one of our first governors said that Puerto Rico was uh, beautiful. The only problem was Puerto Ricans. So the 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 campaigns to depopulate Puerto Rico. Uh, of Puerto Ricans and and bringing more uh, white Americans has has been ongoing for the last hundred years, but it has intensified in uh, uh, since Maria. All right, thank you. That's all very grim. And one one more more thing that I would like to stress is that it is a very disconcerting uh, political position to be in because the actual crisis that has generated an opening for things to change in Puerto Rico was prompted by a colonial move. It was the FBI who did the arrests on the cabinet members that that were like uh, the secretary of of education, etc. So most arrests have come from the federal government. And obviously, because of the history we have, we we take those arrests uh, with suspicion. We still are not clear why now. If they knew this information before, why now? What 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 changed? What's happening uh, in terms of why is the federal government now interest in, interested in a regime change? When in terms of their neoliberal agenda, it's very similar to the Trump's administration. So I'm, I, we're weary about the fact that we are being manipulated on two fronts. That was the philosophy professor and political activist Bernard Tort.
You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood. Back after a musical break. Back after a musical break. Some of Margarita's The Mall from the fantastic new album by Purple Mountains, the trade name of David Berman, formerly known as the Silver Jews. Next, Turkey, where the authoritarian rule of President Recep Erdogan is showing signs of decay. In March, voters rejected the candidate of his party, the AKP, for the mayoralty of Istanbul. An unhappy Erdogan concocted a do-over election in June, where the AKP candidate lost even worse. The country's economy is a wreck, facing high unemployment and inflation. So he fired the president of the central bank, who is hardly an independent sort, and replaced him with someone he hopes will deliver recovery, or at least some money to the empty treasury. And a week ago, Turkey, a NATO member, took delivery on Russian anti-aircraft missiles, much to the annoyance of the U.S. establishment. Here's Saren Kartosli, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, to make sense of it all. Shahan Kartosli. The Istanbul mayoralty, Erdogan was not pleased with the results the first time, re-ran the election and lost again. So how do you read what's going on with that? Yes, I mean, the June 23rd Istanbul elections was the do-over of the March 31st elections. And in that particular, in on March 31st, the AKP-MHP coalition had taken a major defeat, actually. So they lost the major cities, including Ankara, Istanbul, Antalya, Adana, Mersin, etc., to uh, the opposition party. And also it was bad for AKP because also in the cities that the AKP-MHP coalition won, AKP lost the mayorship position to many mayorship positions to his uh, coalition partner, MHP. But of course, the big problem was uh, Istanbul, because when we talk about Istanbul, I mean, it has a huge population. We are talking about uh, 20% of Turkey's population. And we are talking about a huge economy. So the mayor's, Istanbul mayor's budget is around 60 billion Turkish liras, which is around like 10 billion uh, US dollars. And its revenue, if you think it as a corporation comparatively, is larger than any other industrial enterprise in Turkey, maybe except for the Tuprash, the oil petroleum refinery. And AKP and Erdogan, they were actively using this money uh, for their clientelistic redistributions to their business partners and uh, to their followers. And also they're actually just basically stealing uh, the city's revenue. Um, stealing, they are redistributing it. Yes. Okay. It's actually very clear because um, the way that they were consolidating their power 
was based on establishing all of these networks and redistributing this revenue. So what they do is on multiple levels. With the business partners, actually, what they do, every time that the, the municipality has an auction, they don't do it openly in a competitive environment. They give it to their business clients. If something will cost, let's say, 1 million Turkish uh, liras, they do it for 3 million, etc. So um, this is the way that they, they have been consolidating uh, their alliances. And they were also using this revenue for a particular redistribution to the urban poor as well. So AKP's neoliberalism is kind of different from neoliberalism that we see in the global north because they were actually doing a very pragmatic populist redistribution to targeting the poorest uh, populations as well. Istanbul, when we think about the Istanbul mayorship, President Erdogan began his career uh, as Istanbul's mayor uh, 25 years ago. So in Istanbul, he became the Istanbul's mayor, and all of these strategies were established since then. So Erdogan is a saying, uh, who wins Istanbul wins Turkey, who loses Istanbul uh, loses uh, Turkey. So um, I think part of the story is uh, this huge revenue generating mechanism in Istanbul. They actually lost Istanbul. So this is triggering a major crisis for, 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 for the AKP in general. That was my next question. What does this do, do to Erdogan's uh, prestige and power nationally? Erdogan is in a very difficult situation right now, but it's not. The problems are not simply about Istanbul and losing the mayorship. The problems are much deeper because Turkey is facing a very serious economic crisis right now. So, and we are talking uh, much more than a simple um, currency debt crisis. Turkey is uh, experiencing serious inflation, uh, stagnation. So we can easily call this 2018-19 economic crisis, but it will probably deepen in the future. The inflation today is somewhere between 15 to 25 percent. The unemployment rate is around 12 percent. In youth unemployment is 25 to 30 percent. The food prices are skyrocketing, so which makes the lives of the urban poor very difficult. The inflation in food prices is around 20 to 30 percent. And there is huge uh, current account deficit and the budget deficit. This is a major problem. But also, in addition to this uh, economic crisis, Erdogan is facing a major political crisis. So that's even deeper. From a political science perspective, one can say actually Erdogan seems as if he is consolidating power um, because, I mean, in 2017, two years ago, Turkey moved from the parliamentary system to a presidential system, which made Erdogan literally both the head of the state, head of the government, head of his party. Now he appoints everyone, the head of the national intelligence agency, central bank, governors, ambassadors, university rectors, top bureaucrats, without any approval from anyone. There are no longer any serious checks and balances in the system. Erdogan has huge control over the legislative, executive, judicial branches, as well as the media. So one can say, oh, this is his consolidating power. But actually... If you define power as the ability to get someone do something they otherwise would not do, Erdogan is rapidly losing power. So this whole authoritarian turn is just to compensate for that because he's losing his international allies, he's losing his political allies in Turkey, he's losing his allies within his own party. So now, after also this Istanbul the defeat, uh, we are uh, experiencing the first serious resignations from the AKP, and we are on the eve of seeing a major 
uh, resignation, a wave of resignation and separation from the AKP. So, and if it wouldn't be surprised if these people who are now resigning will try to form an alternative center-right party, uh, a center-right liberal party, which will be an alternative to the AKP. So this is kind of the, uh, some of the problems Erdogan is facing right now. But what's interestingly is um, Erdogan cannot find anyone he can trust uh, also uh, around him. So he's more and more relying on his family. So it, he's following a classical patrimonial rule right now. So as, he's, as he loses his power and international and external, internal and external allies, uh, he is relying more and more on his family. He put his son-in-law uh, Berat Albayrak as the finance minister, the minister of finance and treasury. And Albayrak's team has reorganized the whole AKP organizations in major cities in Istanbul and Ankara. And this produced major grievances from former AKP cadres. So there we also see this emergent internal feud within the party between different sections. But maybe last thing and most paradoxically, as Erdogan loses power and as he tries to have direct control over any institution he sees, paradoxically, as he does this, these institutions do no longer function. So um, we see, we increasingly see dysfunctional state institutions and the whole state and bureaucracy is uh, almost paralyzed. Without Erdogan, they cannot do anything. And Erdogan actually cannot keep up with running the state, running the government, running his party at the same time. And as this crisis deepens, it not only aggravates the economic and social crisis that we talked about, but also is producing a major structural crisis for the modern Turkish state. And of course, Istanbul mayorship is important here because it is showing many people, including uh, AKP cadres, that this might be the beginning of the end. The central bank, I'm sure much to Donald Trump's envy, he fired the uh, old head of the central bank and put in uh, his guy there uh, who wants to lower rates. Uh, what's, what's going on there? It seems kind of bizarre with a collapsing currency and uh, you know high inflation to uh, talk about lower rates, but that's what Erdogan wants, right? Yes. I mean, I think there are two ways to look at this issue. And the first one, and this is probably the most dominant and popular interpretation, is to consider this firing of the central bank's president, Murat Çetinkaya, as a part of Erdogan's um, authoritarianism and his efforts to have even a stronger grip on Turkish economy. And I think this is how this event is widely being interpreted. I mean, it's not a secret that Erdogan has very, how can I say, unorthodox views about the relationship between interest rates and inflation. So he believes that to lower inflation, actually, you need to lower the interest rates. And this is uh, against everything economists know about macroeconomics. And President Erdogan is constantly being mocked about his views on this matter by economic circles. And it's not also a secret that Erdogan has for a long time, he has always been pressuring central bank to lower the interest rates. So this is very similar to what Trump demands from the Fed. But of course, the key difference is that uh, Turkey is operating in an environment where inflation is around 15 percent, uh, so sometimes 25 percent, etc. So from this perspective, it might appear as if the central bank president was fired because he did not want to give concession and consequently Erdogan fired him. But this interpretation makes a lot of sense, but it also conceals some of the complexities of the matter. For one thing, that 
former President Chetinkaya was not such an independent central bank president. So, I mean, since he assumed office in 2016, and since then, he didn't strike anyone as an independent president. Actually, Erdogan and AKP changed the law in 2016 about central bank in order to be able to make Chetinkaya the head of the central bank. So when he assumed, since he assumed office, he tried to follow the directions of Erdogan as much as he could. And precisely because of this, he was being widely criticized by the investors and the liberal economic circles. They were people were saying the central bank is not independent at all. So when he needed to increase interest rates under political pressure many times, he did not. And when he did, he did by going to the palace and taking the approval of Erdogan. So this is not how an independent president would act. And also what is interesting is he had only 10 months left for his term to be over. If the president was not happy with Chetinkaya's performance, he could have easily waited for his term to be over. So the question is, what is this rush? What's <laughs> happening? And I think there might be two other answers to this question as well. First, I think Erdogan and the AKP government knows that the crisis Turkey is facing is much more serious than anyone has imagined. Now the treasury is almost empty. So there's no serious production in the country. There are no longer any available cheap uh, sources, credit sources or capital uh, inflows. Uh, there are no any uh, state enterprises left to be privatized. So the neoliberal accumulation by dispossession strategy has its limits. So the only way to put some money in the treasury right now is to use the sources of the central bank. This is the last frontier. Actually, they have been doing that. So in January, 2019, Erdogan arranged an early transfer of central bank profits to the treasury. Normally they were due in April, but they said, we have no money, we need to do it now. And then they started to make an amendment to the law, which would let treasury to use these extraordinary legal reserves of the central bank. This is the money that central bank sets aside for very extraordinary circumstances. So we know that they were doing this, but it is likely that Erdogan might be also pressuring the central bank to print more money to create some credit. Of course, this is a suicide mission since uh, it would trigger devaluation and superinflation and it would trigger a major crisis. But I think at this point, it, it might be possible that um, Erdogan wants to save the business circles first. So he probably wants to adapt. He wants the debts of the private sector to be paid. And uh, he's aware that this might a trigger a crisis, but it will also provide profits for businesses who accumulate their wealth in US dollars. But if he wanted this, it's understandable why the head of the central bank refused to do it because he didn't want to be the man behind the suicide mission. So that was the one point of friction. But I think the second important point is, um, I think it's clear everyone that the, the new presidential system is not working. That's sometimes also the AKP circle says as well. The most important argument for the transition from the parliamentary regime to this new uh, presidential regime was stability. Erdogan argued that under the presidential system, there will be stability in economic and political spheres. He said, give me power, I will bring stability. And he has now all the power he needs. I mean, he appointed his son-in-law in charge of finance. And it's clear to everyone that together with his son-in-law, he was controlling also the central bank. So the independent was already a myth. But in spite of all this centralization and of, of power, the Turkish economy is going rapidly downhill. 
And it's obvious to many people that no one else can be responsible for this trend other than Erdogan. So for political purposes, Erdogan desperately needs to externalize this responsibility. So I think here he is using a dual strategy. I mean, at the international sphere, he puts the blame on the Western powers like US, Trump, global financial circles, what he calls the inter interest lobby, etc. This is also where these S-400s comes into the picture. But at the national sphere, he also needs to point at someone. So regarding high inflation rates Turkey is facing right now, he cannot point to at his son-in-law. Uh, so he's pointing at the central uh, central bank's head. He knows that things will probably be very worse soon. And he's preparing the public opinion for why this catastrophe happened. He said, it's not me, uh, but there is a central bank and they're not doing uh, what they were supposed to do. I'm speaking with the sociologist, Shahan Karatasli. Why is the economy so sick? Economy has been sick for some time. So it's not that new, but actually there were a couple of things happening that uh, concealed this. AKP came to power after 2001 economic crisis. The 2001 economic crisis is the worst economic crisis in the history of Turkey. So, uh, and they came to power um, after this economic crisis and they actually benefited, AKP benefited from the structural reforms that were done in and around 2001. So, and then they had this uh, spectacular growth and, and, and temporarily, and there were huge capital inflows. And then the economy actually were about to get into stagnation, but um, then uh, the 2008-9 uh, global financial crisis happened. But when the global crisis happened, Turkey economy, because they we had, the, the crisis before, and we had the structural reforms before, this turned to be an advantage because Turkey was not affected from the global crisis that much. So from 2011, 12, 13, etc., there were huge capital coming to Turkey. So the foreign business circles who were escaping the global financial situation, they were investing on Turkey, and Turkey was using that money. So that's why the problems in the economy didn't reveal. But now what happened is, this whole financial, neoliberal financial um, strategy has reached its limits um, because um, th 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 this money, this finance capital that they were receiving, this invest, uh, the money that they were receiving, they didn't use to expand the production uh, and trade or technological in uh, innovation, etc. They lost their competitive advantage very clearly. They were relying on cheap credit sources, then they disappeared. They were relying on privatization, but now there is no nothing left to privatize anymore. So then they realize now today there is no money anywhere. The problem is um, partly about the neoliberal strategy, AKP strategy, uh, coming to its limits on the one hand. And also, they didn't realize that in countries like Turkey, in this kind of semi-peripheral context, interest rates will be structurally higher. So Erdogan didn't expect this. In Turkey, they are always high. But he, when he came to power, he enjoyed the benefits of declining interest rates from 2003, 4, 5 onwards. And that's also what happened after the global financial crisis. So he experienced that. And he thought that that was his own doing. But he didn't realize that it was not him. It was the global conjuncture which was creating those profits temporarily. And now that conjuncture is no longer there. 
So, and that's why he's saying to the central bank, so lower the interest rate, so then we can have credit and we will do, uh, we will start producing again. Why are you not doing it? But of course, he doesn't realize that in this environment, if the interest rates are lowered, it will be a catastrophe. He doesn't really uh, understand or believe this. Uh, are Erdogan's days numbered? And if so, what comes next? Well, it's difficult to know. In Turkey, one of the problems, I mean, one, this is definitely a transformative moment. We don't know if Erdogan's days are limited because um, he, he, he survived many difficult situations before. And, um, but it's, 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 it's for sure, one thing is sure, Turkey is currently facing all of these simultaneous crises in economic, political, social, geopolitical spheres. But this crisis as environment is producing a vicious cycle that cannot disappear without the structural transformation of the Turkish state and the economy. So whatever will happen, they need to deal with this mess. In Turkey, there is the big problem is, has always been there were no strong opposition to Erdogan. And it's still the problem because Erdogan lost um, these municipal elections, the local elections in major cities, uh, doesn't mean that the opposition problem has been solved. I mean, many people believe that Ekrem Imamoglu, who became the Istanbul may- Istanbul's mayor, uh, will be a good candidate for the presidency. Um, and many people believe that, but it's kind of, we don't know actually, because uh, Ekrem Imamoglu himself, I mean, we don't know much about him. He was a uh, more of a dark horse candidate during these uh, elections. He doesn't characterize his politics in terms of um, left or right. So he says he wants to embrace all people and mobilize them for a better future. So his slogan in the local elections, will everything will be fine again. He has this anti-corruption rhetoric. He also has the characteristics of a conservative center-right politician. So he doesn't hesitate to cite verses from Quran. So many people say, oh, this can be a good alternative to Erdogan in the presidential elections. Some people are also saying, well, um, it's true that uh, he's not Erdogan, but he's not also the, the very good alternative. So if we talk about what will happen next, the, I think the problems is not about the domestic politics because Turkey is also uh, geopolitically fine, <laughs> geopolitically in a very difficult situation. So many things can change very quickly in the near future. And because of the S-400s and the increasing rivalry between Russia and United States and the chaos in the Middle East. So um, it's not clear uh, what will happen geopolitically in the, in the region too. So what about these Russian missiles? What's the thinking behind that? I mean, that's a big step for Turkey, a NATO member to take, importing Russian missiles. One of the interesting matter on this is that this act of buying S-400s is not only supported by the governing parties like AKP and MHB, but also by the main opposition parties. I think the only segment of the opposition that takes a critical stand is the Kurds, the HDP. They believe that nothing good for Kurds can come out of uh, can can come out uh, of this further militarization of Turkey. They are not wrong because uh, this is happening in a very interesting context. I mean, while this Russian manufactured S-400 missile system is a defense system, Turkey is buying this system or uh, it wants to buy them together with the U.S. manufactured F-35s. Uh, which are offensive combat jets. And this whole militarization process is taking place during Turkey's military operations called uh, Operation Klal in northern Iraq. With these operations, Turkey aims to exterminate the PKK militants in northern Iraq, 
They want to expand their sphere of influence in the Middle East and take another steps towards becoming a regional hegemon and to have a better leverage and bargaining power vis-a-vis the United States for a joint military operation against YPG, YPJ targets in Syria. And this is where the S-400s come into the picture, because by buying the Russian's defense system in spite of U.S. threats, uh, this is Erdogan's way of saying, look, you're not indispensable to me, and you need me in the Middle East more than I need you. There is this great power next to me called Russia, and they're offering a better defense systems for better prices. So you are no longer the only game in town. And if you don't want to help me with my problem in Syria, meaning the Kurds, I can also get a better deal, try to get a better deal from Russians because we have been talking. Look, I mean, I did not just buy this for hundreds, but we have been talking about co-producing as 500s. We have been talking about Turkey's entrance into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, etc. So this is the part where the decline of the U.S. world hegemony and increasing interstate rivalry comes into the picture. So it's not local politics about Turkey, it's a more global phenomena, because there's a partial truth here, because indeed Russia has actively been trying to produce this Euro-Asian counter-hegemonic bloc that can challenge the U.S. And Russia has been selling this S-400s to China, Turkey, India, uh, they want to de- deal with Iran, etc. So this is putting U.S. in a very difficult situation. But Erdogan believes that, and the AKP, I think they believe that this, this move, the S-400 move, is a win-win scenario for them. If they say the U.S. does not impose sections, then they will propagate this as a big victory of Erdogan against the U.S., and they're already doing that in the Turkish news, if you look. Erdogan is being depicted as this great leader who is fighting and maintaining Turkey's freedom and independence against Western powers, and the leader who redemonstrates the world's Turkey's supremacy, etc. So AKP wants to capitalize on such ideological propaganda, which appeals to nationalist and chauvinist feelings, that are abundant in a semi-peripheral Middle Eastern country like Turkey. But if the U.S. chooses to impose sections, which AKP doesn't believe, but I think they will use this and say, see, uh, the reason of this whole economic and political crisis is not us, it's not the presidential system, it's not the AKP, it's not Erdogan, but the U.S. We have been fighting for maintaining our independence, but they couldn't tolerate it. So in all cases, they believe they can rally people and other parties around Erdogan with this S-400 move, and they believe that this will eventually boost Erdogan's declining popularity and give him some leverage. That was Shahan Kard Osli, a sociologist who teaches at UNC Greensboro. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another song from that Purple Mountains album, this. That's just the way that I feel. Till next week, bye. Well, I don't like talking to myself, but someone's gotta say it, hell, I mean, things have not been going. I've been home.